This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Whether or not you are seeking Pete out, some way or another, you're going to hear or see him and learn about him and Our bet was that if you saw him and heard him, that you would like him. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. What does it take for a Midwest mayor to become a viable presidential candidate? What's it like to be a crisis communications expert in the eye of New York City's tabloids? What does it take to go from a field organizer to one of the most well-respected communication strategists in American politics? We're going to talk about all of this and more with my guest today, Liz Smith. Liz is a veteran of 20-something political campaigns and has extensive experience in public affairs and media relations at the local, state, and national levels. Most recently, she was a senior advisor in communications to presidential candidates and America's new mayor, Pete Buttigieg. She's worked for President Barack Obama's re-election campaign, Senator Claire McCaskill and Governors Andrew Cuomo, Terry McAuliffe, Ted Strickland, John Corzine, and Martin O'Malley. Most recently, she is the author of a great, great new memoir called Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. Liz, welcome to Politicology. Thanks for having me, Ron. So... Why don't we begin with the title? Why don't you tell us about why you chose Any Given Tuesday as the title of the book, and then we'll dig in. I weave my love for professional football, specifically the Cincinnati Bengals, throughout my book. And professional football was also a big basis of my close relationship with my dad, who I write a lot about in my book as well. And there's a saying in professional football, uh, any given Sunday, which is that on any given Sunday, the worst team in the league uh, can walk on the field and beat the best team. The best team in the league can walk on the field and lose to the worst team. And it's not your wins or losses that define you. It's just that element of belief that keeps you going Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. And the same dynamic applies in politics. And when you read my book, you see, yes, I had some great wins. I also had some bruising losses in both my personal and professional life. And what it takes to keep going through all these things and what it takes for really anyone who works in politics to go from campaign to campaign to campaign is that element of belief, is that belief that your wins and losses don't define you. So I wanted, it took me a long time to come up with the title. I went through about a hundred, but finally the second I landed on this one, I realized, wow, okay, this, we got it. This one makes a lot of sense. So what I love about the book, first of all, when I sat down to to start reading, I immediately, I immediately started feeling, oh my God, we've, we, I have a lot of these experiences uh, in my past, especially, I think we're we're similar ages and started around the same time and i started thinking oh my god i remember i i had that moment oh my i know that moment i i know i know what that feels like and it was kind of like tracing in a different way 
um, uh, sort of my my own career trajectory. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you what drew you into politics in some of the the, the early days, um, and then and then we'll talk about some of those uh, those war stories. Wow. So I'm a I'm a big political nerd. I got drawn into politics when I was very young. Both my parents were fairly politically active, although had different political affiliations. And the first presidential race I really followed was the 1992 presidential race between Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. And I was about eight or nine years old then. And I remember a year or so after the campaign, the documentary, The War Room came out. And I was absolutely obsessed with that movie. I just fell in love with the behind the scenes of politics because, you know, generally when you see political movies, they're all focused on uh, the politicians themselves, not really what happens behind the scenes, not what is shaping the stories, not all the drama. And so watching that was really fascinating to me, but I couldn't help but notice in it that, you know, all those starring characters were men. The only woman you really saw in it was Jennifer Flowers. But so that was what first drew me into politics. But then, like a a lot of people who are my age, I'm 39 years old. I was born in 1982. 9-11 was a big moment um, that happened a week before I went to college. And the Iraq War, when I was in college, was something, you know, along with my classmates at I opposed, protested against. And then the 2004 election was when I first really started getting involved. I'd knocked on doors before then, but I took a term off to intern for John Edwards on his presidential campaign, traveled the country from New Hampshire, Ohio, Wisconsin, and then Tom Daschle in 2004. But it really was seeing politics through the eyes of, you know, an eight, nine-year-old. And even back then, I could understand how much it mattered, how much of our lives that it touched, and that it was something I wanted to maybe eventually be involved in. So what has changed then since the 2004 Edwards campaign? How's that feeling towards politics changed over the course of your career? Well, you there have been a lot of losses and a lot of wins since then. Certainly, that was an odd campaign to have as your first campaign because four years later, we learned that Edwards was such a disappointment and maybe even a fraud, if you want to use that term. But never have I ever questioned how important this work is. My friend Tim Miller just wrote this amazing book, um, Why We Did It, about why all these Republicans sort of went and gravitated toward Donald Trump when they should have known better. And Tim talks about the thrill. They did know better. Yes. Yeah, they did know better. Yeah. And um, Tim talks about the thrill of the game and how people can get sucked up so much in the game of politics that they forget that it it's actually something really important that impacts people's lives that, you know, these aren't just, um, you know, pawns on a chessboard. And for me, yes, there is an element of excitement to politics, but it has always been about something bigger. It has been about more than just winning or losing. It's not just like a football game to me. And you really do see the stakes of it, uh, 
and we certainly have seen the stakes of politics in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic and with the Dobbs decision and how, whether or not you like it, whether or not you're a Democrat, Republican, or completely apolitical, that politics does touch every part of our lives. So I've never lost sight of how important it is and why I got involved in the first place. Yeah. And when you do lose sight of it, that's that's when the really dangerous stuff can happen. So most people see the public persona of an elected official or a candidate. They, you know, they see the person on stage or in the TV interview, they see them at the news conference, but they don't always get to see the candidate the way staff and advisors do. And another thing I love about the book is that you show that you, you, you really pull back the curtain and, and the good, bad, and the ugly and the, and the candid moments. Um, you, you bring people in, you know, to the, to the backseat of the SUV where they never get to see, right. In 2006, when you were working for Senator Claire McCaskill and you, and you write about how you were taking some heat in the press and she took you out to a bar for a drink and checked in on you. Can you talk about the personal scrutiny, but also the fact that she would take the time to care in that way? That's a really good point, is we often do view politicians as sort of these two-dimensional characters that are just purely self-obsessed monsters and purely focused on winning their elections. And to be clear, they are very focused on winning their elections. If they're not, um, they're usually not very good candidates. But it is what I wanted to show people with this book is that all of these people are human, both good and bad ways. And in that case with Claire, you know, I was 23 years old and I'm getting attacked by a this vile Republican blogger who is now a vile Republican consultant on the national level. Um, and it showed me that you can still be very focused at what you're doing. She was running in one of the closest, toughest, nastiest races in the 2006 cycle um, against a Republican incumbent, but that she still took, you know, hour and a half, two hours out of her day to sort of comfort a 23-year-old and let me know, okay, just because this guy is taking shots at you, it doesn't mean that the sky is falling just because you're all over his blog and he's posting photos of you. And it does remind you that um, these are real people and that not only that, but that there is a dynamic on campaigns where it's a little bit different from other workplaces, I think, where you get a little bit closer. It does develop more of a family dynamic. And again, both good and bad. Uh, sometimes that can be weaponized against staff. But for me, it, it was a good reminder that um, even when you see these people who, like Claire, are out there taking all these arrows in the press, sort of these political beasts, that there is something behind them. And um, it's always important to remember that a lot of these people do have a very human side to them and a warmth to them that does inform who they are as leaders. After the McCaskill race, you had a run of a couple of losing campaigns. And I think that's something you know, every political consultant, operative, hack, whatever you want to call yourself, really understands. Whether you start out winning or start out losing, eventually you go through a season, if you're in it long enough, where uh, where, where, where you hit a losing streak. Um, can you talk about what that period of time was like for you and also the upsides of losing? 
Well, you know, the, it's so funny. There are people who are like, oh my God, I can't believe you keep working on these races that are losing. And I guess that there are people in politics who just go and try to work on the most winnable races, the easiest races, you know, on the Democratic side, in the bluest of states. And, you know, good for them. Um, you know, I guess it's, it would be like rooting for the Patriots or something like that. I'm, I'm a Cincinnati <laughs> Bengals fan. So clearly I am someone with a, um, with a love for the underdog. But the reason why I went to work on races like Terry McAuliffe's in 2009 or John Corzine's in 2009 or Ted Strickland's in 2010 was not because I thought they would be easy, but because I knew they would be hard and because I knew that they would be high profile, because I knew they would be bruising and because I knew that I would probably learn a lot of things on them. Um, the easy races don't get a lot of scrutiny. The easy races, you know, aren't in the press. The easy races don't, you know, get you the battle scars that you need to become better at your job in politics. And you really do need to be battle tested, I think, to, to be good at this line of work. You know, the people I've worked with who have never had that sort of experience are the first people to sort of hide under their desks the second anything gets tough. And, um, you know, I'm sort of the opposite way, which is I, you know, I, I love the, to be in the heat of a crisis and to help people when they're in the middle of a crisis. So what I learned from those moments is how to stay calm under pressure when how not to let, you know, a bad poll here or there just knock me off my game, um, how to deal with really bad press clips. I mean, there's, there are some periods I write about in my book when I was working for John Corzine, where for about a month straight, he was just getting beaten to a pulp in the press. And it could have been really demoralizing, um, except, you know, we just kept plugging along and then we had an opportunity to sort of turn the tables on Chris Christie and come back from about 20 down to losing by only three points during a tea party wave. So it is really important to have that experience to, to, um, help, you know, toughen your skin, thicken your skin and, um, uh, help teach you that, uh, well, not to go always go back to any given Tuesday, but that like not to get too wrapped up in the highs or to, 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 <laughs> thank you, thank you. I I thought fit perfectly, but too wrapped up in the lows. And I don't know what your sort of win loss record is, but you know it is. Um, there is a really big difference, and you can really tell on a campaign who has been in the trenches of tough campaigns and who hasn't been. Yeah, I mean, speaking of it, it, okay, so it's one thing for your for your candidate. Uh, to really have a tough time to get brutalized in the press or to lose badly yeah. or even to lose close, right? Because yeah. all of those are still, those are all still work, right? You're still in campaign mode. Right. You're still like, you're you're a hired gun, but there's something different that happens when you are in the media storm yourself, right? So in 2013, you were dating former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer, and working on Bill de Blasio's mayoral campaign. Um, 
and you found yourself in one. So can you talk about what it was like for you to go from a communication strategist to being, you know, behind the scenes to being in the middle of a of a New York tabloid non-scandal scandal, right? And how that experience navigating that, right, impacted your approach to crisis management. Yeah, so handling someone else's crisis isn't I wouldn't exactly say it's always an enjoyable experience, but there is sort of an academic element to it, which is that it's not you that's under the spotlight. It's not you that's taking all the arrows. Even sometimes it feels like it is the press that is beating the shit out of you or your opponent that's beating the shit out of you. But um, it really is the candidate or the person that you're working for who is, you know, dealing with, um, the incoming and dealing with sort of the emotional pressure of the crisis. And I'd had to deal with plenty of crises, uh, across my career for various candidates. Um, whether it was on the Obama campaign, Claire McCaskill, John Corzine, who had, who, as I write about in my book, had to deal with the biggest anti-corruption sting in New Jersey history, which is no small yeah. feat for anyone who is familiar with New Jersey history, political history. Um, so then, yes. So then in December of 2013, I am working for incoming mayor, Bill de Blasio, and uh, it breaks in the New York Post that I had just you know, recently begun seeing uh, former Governor Elliot Spitzer. And of course, you know, New York has a very vibrant tabloid culture, and I was splashed all over the tabloids, um, my relationship with Elliot. And as a result of that, uh, Bill de Blasio fired me. Um, he fired me for no reason except uh, for because of who I was dating. And it was a really tough time because I had always thought, okay, I can handle everyone's crises. So of course I can handle my own. And what I learned is no, you can't like, it's an inherent conflict of interest. (laughs) And there's, there is no way to be objective and to be truly calm when it is your name that is being splashed across the press, when it is like, how are you supposed to call reporters and talk to them about yourself when they are telling you the biggest falsehoods that are being peddled about you to them? Um, and it taught me a little bit about humility and the need for humility. Sometimes people in our line of work and politics, um, can, can grow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We can get a little cocky, a little big for our britches and (laughs) think that we, we have the answers to everything. Um, but it also taught me, uh, you know, the importance of, of having good people around you. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lesson that I always tell people, in politics, I always tell politicians is make sure that you hire good people and good people you can rely on because, you know, the worst politicians are the ones who try to micromanage everything and try to handle everything themselves. Um, but yes, it did 
teach me that you can't handle your own crises. Sometimes you need to rely on other people and that, you know, it's not particularly fun to be in, in, in the line of fire, but it did give me a new perspective, um, as an advisor to candidates that I didn't have before and a new level, I think of maybe maturity and empathy, which is that when they, when future people I was working for would be going through crises, whether they're, you know, baby crises or let's say mega crises that are, are on the front pages of, of national newspapers that, I could talk to them in a way other advisors couldn't. You know, I could talk to them as someone who had been through these experiences. I could talk to their family members who were upset about it um, and talk them through sort of what the life cycle of the crisis would be like. And um, I found it to be, you know, extremely helpful and in an odd way sort of cathartic over the years, being able to take my experience and the everything that I felt, you know, the isolation, the, um, alienation, you know, like being, I was 30 years old, I think 31 years old. I get fired from my job. I have politics as we know is filled with a lot of people who are only there for you when you're up, not when you're down. And so I knew the feeling of, you know, the people who sort of ditch you because you're no longer valuable to them. Um, what it's like to get staked out by the press and have your family staked out by the press. And then I was able to talk to politicians I work for, or even politicians I didn't work for, frankly, um, but wanted to help out about how all of those things would unfold. And it ended up being helpful to me in my career, but also a little bit cathartic because I could share the lessons of everything that I had learned. Can you tell us what you really think about Bill de Blasio? <laughs> I know I really held back that section. I really did. Yeah, you um, did. Yeah. <laughs> I I know some of my favorite descriptors of him I think were that he was routinely and obscenely late, um intellectually lazy, um, you know, Man, you childish. were downright polite. <laughs> yeah, but I uh, you know what I got to say is to a person Everyone I know who worked for Bill de Blasio called me after reading those sections or, and was like, damn, you nailed it, <laughs> right? Because there were he's one of those people in politics where I, I do try to pull back the curtain on what it's like behind the scenes and what candidates are like. Yeah. And some really important advice I got in writing this book from people who had written political memoirs and from reporters who had written, you know, behind the scenes of what it what it's like to work in the media or in the political industry is that you've got to be honest. You you can't pull punches. You've got to be willing to light other people on fire and you've got to be willing to light yourself on fire. And I definitely do, you know, douse myself in lighter fluid a few times in the book and light a match. But um, with with candidates like Bill de Blasio, I did want to be truly honest about them without being overly gratuitous. And, um, you know, there's a reason why someone like him ended up being so reviled by the people of New York, ended up, you know, recently running for Congress 
which is a massive step down from mayor, massive step down from mayor. And he's in a district where he's got 100% name ID, but is only polling at 3%. And it's sort of important for people who maybe aren't exposed to him every day in New York City and exposed to the you know truly horrendous press that he was getting toward the end of his term after a lot of New Yorkers had seen the quality of life in New York City decline under his watch. It was important for me to explain to them exactly why this was, because it is very anomalous to be polling at 100% name ID, but then just like 3% in voter preference. And like, you know, I mean, a serial killer would be polling higher than 3%. Like Donald like Donald Trump would poll higher than 3% in a democratic primary. And so as much as I pull back the curtain and show the good sides of politicians, I did want to pull back the curtain and show how some of them can be like overgrown children and and some of them Psychopathic, are are these people right. Yes, exactly and He's not the only one. We all nope. have stories. We all know. We all have at least one. Yeah. <laughs> we all have at least one and that everyone who works for them secretly hates and um, the one that treats staff like dirt. So that was Bill de Blasio was was one of those people in my book. And, you know, I felt like he did me dirty, but. You know, it, this wasn't about you know being Monte Cristo here or anything. It was about showing that um, sort of the disappointing side of, of of politics. And for me, it was talking a little bit about my ambition. Like I knew this this wasn't like he wasn't going to be some great mayor or transformative leader. I just wanted a high profile job for the mayor of New York. Um, but I'm I did hear that. Uh, from a lot of people in New York politics that they really, 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 really enjoyed that part of my book because um, it was, uh, it captured him well. I got to say the whole, the whole book is really enjoyable. And uh, as somebody who, who usually skips the, uh, the, the political memoirs, this one was really fun to read, like re really, really fun and candid and honest. And, and the stories that you tell might as well have been from the campaigns that I worked on and, and like, it's real. So if anybody wants a, I think it's important to tell people, this is not, first of all, if, if you didn't know, this is not a typical political memoir. And if you really want a look at what campaigns are really like, um, this is, this is, this is the book to pick up. I would, can I ask you a question is what, what stories does it remind you of from your career? Oh my God. I'm uh, curious. I, mean, I want to turn the table back around. Cause I'm so used to talking about my book, sure. but I want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, from the very beginning, I mean, I, I, I got into politics. I've, I've talked about this on the show before, not, you know, because I wanted to go change the world, but just because I was curious, because I saw the newscasts on the, you know, the, the local news and thought, well, there's something more going on behind the scenes here. So I want to go figure it out. And um, I, I started in, uh, 2004 was my, you know, 2002 was a sort of nothing cycle, but 2004 in earnest. And then, uh, 2006 cycle, I did, um, fundraising for three big, uh, three big house race, th three big races, one U S Senate, one governor, one, uh, house. So, um, 
raised like $11 million. This was in 2006 cycle, the most toxic cycle for Republicans ever. And we ended up winning all three. And right. so I entered right. after the 2004 Bush Cheney reelect. I was like, oh, this is this actually this shit can be really fun. And then 2006, like, <laughs> holy shit, we're on top of the world. We just won three races, all three top of the ticket races in a, in a, in a toxic cycle for Republicans. This is going to be great. So I had exactly the opposite start. And then going into 2008, I was the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And and we got uh, what's the shellacking? Is I think uh, you could you could call it shellacked. And yeah, that, and that shellacked, and that was the beginning of a losing streak for me. So I had sort of the inverse experience uh, that you did. But some of the disappointments, like John Ensign, was one of the candidates that I worked for in 2006. That cycle, and you know, I was with him on the on the Iowa tour, the pre presidential visit, the Blue Bunny ice cream parlor. And it wasn't, you know, a week or two later after that, that I got the call that, Hey, you know, brace yourself. Um, there's this scandal's about to break in a week or two and Mr. Oh, Family values went, goes down in a, in a ball of flames. And, uh, you know, it turns out he was having an affair with the chief of staff's wife and then tried to cover it up with a, uh, you know, with a, with a $120,000 bribe spread across four children. And like, it was just a nasty mess. And, um, and so I had, I, I sort of, the, the, the stories felt very familiar to me, but in a different way because they happened in a different order for me. And I went in a little bit more bright eyed and optimistic and, and then, you know, uh, and then the, the stuff just started crumbling all around me. So, yeah. Uh, but man, uh, but, uh, the yeah. Win, when you win after a bruising, t- when you win after a bruising time, man, it feels so good though. Yeah. Yeah, it feels yeah. so good. <laughs> that was, you know, Lincoln Project was uh, was that for me after 2020. That was an incredible, incredible high, but also sort of melancholic. Um, well, we'll get maybe we'll get to that. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the um, the the punditry um, that you did and what you took away from that experience because uh, I think that's going to resonate a lot with people. You wrote. Um, at some point in the book, I wrote this down. If cable news eroded the thoughtfulness of news coverage, Twitter demolished it. Some of the rationale for round-the-clock political coverage is that it will it will somehow hold politicians more accountable. Perversely, it's had the opposite effect. It's reduced politics to a spectator sport where meaningless minute-by-minute developments are blown out of proportion, turning the smallest stories into the biggest ones. Now, this was in the context of uh, the Obama campaign sort of uh, using Twitter uh, as a as a as a tool, right? And then and then Twitter, obviously, you know, in its in its infancy, then go, grows up to become this this political behemoth. And twenty twenty uh, Pew study comes out, and it's like, hey, they're nearly all Democrats over here, by the way. <laughs> and and I wonder what your view of the media ecosystem is now. That you've spent you you spent some time doing punditry, you know, doing the making the cable news rounds, and found yourself saying things you didn't actually believe because you were playing to an audience that you know wanted to hear, what, you know, telling them what they wanted to hear. So how do you how do you view that now, um, given given how much time has passed since that season? With Twitter, what was fascinating is the 2012 election was the first election where Twitter really was a factor. It was around in 2008, but it, it just wasn't really a factor in in 
you know, among voters, among reporters, among elites. In 2012, um, Twitter was, but it was mostly among, I would say, reporters and operatives versus the voters. And what we learned from Twitter in 2012 was that um, on the Obama campaign, was that we could really use it to help shape the media narrative. Um, so, for instance, like if Mitt Romney is in the middle of an event and he makes a gaffe or one of his surrogate says something really dumb or really offensive that we could tweet something out, get it into the ecosystem. It would circulate among reporters so that before Romney's event is even over, like a conventional wisdom is starting to congeal that, Oh my God, this horrible thing happened. And it overtakes the message of Mitt Romney's event. Um, and it also allowed us, you know, in the past, you know, you would have to wait forever to respond to an event and, you know, call reporters or email out a statement. We we use Twitter to be nimble and to to always try to shape the media narrative before we could lose control of it. Now, I think that a lot of people took the wrong lessons from the 2012 election, and I know a lot of flacks or press press staffers who certainly did, which is that because we effectively used Twitter, they then thought that Twitter was the end-all be-all of how you do press relations. So that instead of picking up the phone and building relationships with reporters, you could just tweet, um, and that was enough. That instead of um, you know, doing the hard work of getting to know the issues and putting out press releases or whatever it was, you could just tweet and that, um, a lot of campaigning you could just do through Twitter, which is not how it works. Um, and you know, there, I write in my campaign that I read in my book that I'd heard from a reporter that in 2020, that one of the other 2020 campaigns had told him, you know, I wake up every a press staffer for one of the other 2020 campaigns, I should clarify, had told him my goal every day when I wake up is to win Twitter. And I mean, that just must make your head explode hearing hmm. that. Right. Because that is absolutely. Yeah. I've heard that so many times. Oh, I've heard it so many times. Absolutely yeah. not the goal of, of this because Twitter is so not indicative of real life. And I think it's like only 20% of all, like 20% of all people I think have Twitter accounts and only a fraction of those people are actually active on Twitter and only a small fraction of those people actually like post on Twitter and the people who do post on Twitter are so unrepresentative of voters as a whole. And on the Democratic side, right, if you look at the studies in 2020, the people who are overrepresented were um, much whiter, much more affluent, much more likely to live in cities, much more likely to support Warren and Sanders than your average voter. So if you are a reporter or if you are a political operative that is only basing their worldview on Twitter, you are completely missing the plot. You totally do not understand what's happening in, you know, among voters. And that's why 
you know, we saw with the reporters who weren't actually going on the ground in Iowa or New Hampshire and with staffers who were sort of just stuck in these bubbles at headquarters that, you know, they thought that Elizabeth Warren was just going to blow everyone out of the water and that Pete <laughs> Buttigieg was Rosemary's baby and that Pete, buddy, because, you know, you remember this dynamic by like November, or December, after Pete started to you know, um, become more of a factor, like he just became, um, you know, Twitter target number one, uh, of the left on Twitter. And I remember, um, at some point in December, I think it was a Reuters reporter went to Iowa and tweeted, like, I honest, after, after reading this health site for the last couple of months, I hate to inform everyone that nearly to a person, every voter I've talked to in Iowa says that Pete Buttigieg is either their first or second (laughs) choice. And it was like, boo, mind blown because it was so at odds with what people were saying on Twitter. And um, it goes to show you what a, um, how it can really distort coverage it can distort people's perceptions of who's up and who's down and that you really have to take everything that happens on twitter with a grain of salt um because it is so out of whack with what's going on in reality and for me i'm a i i use twitter i use twitter primarily um I use it to see, uh, to get news, to, you know, see clips maybe Mm -hmm. from news sources that I'm not going to see. I also use it to track um, if a news story is like blowing up, right? Because you and I both know that there's sort of a life cycle, especially on the right, where there's a pipeline of, Okay, RNC research oh, picks yeah. something up. Then it goes to like Daily Wire. Then it goes here. And you know, it's only a matter of time till it's on Fox News. And then only a matter of time from when it migrates from Fox News to the mainstream media. So I find it helpful in that way. Yeah, but you can set your watch by it. Exactly, exactly. And, but no one should use Twitter um, as a gauge of public sentiment or voter sentiment because it is so far off in that sense. But speaking of like like alternate reality, so Twitter's a really great example of campaign staff getting a bad, uh, let's say bad campaign staff, getting a skewed idea of what the electorate looks and feels like right now, what they care about, right? But then- there's another version of that, which happens on cable news. And, yes, and the, yes. one, the one anecdote, which I'd love for you to speak to, and then we'll, we'll move on to other things. But I thought this, 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 um, this little bit of writing was very revealing about what happens in cable news. And the fact that you were candid about it is I, I, like, you, you don't often hear from people who are doing the cable hits about exactly what's going on there and you know, to, to the to the extent that listeners can hear about it right so you wrote this is in 2016 outrage was especially in demand in 2016 and i found myself regularly pandering to the lowest common denominator and making assertions i would never make in a strategy meeting or even over dinner every time i had to commentate on a debate or a speech i found myself calibrating what i said to what people wanted to hear now there's a lot of stuff we talk about on this show that would not be palatable on cable news for exactly that reason, can you 
like, tell me what you were thinking and feeling as you recognized what was, you know, the game that you were in and, and, and how you sort of pulled out of it and what, what people really didn't understand about cable news. Yeah. And that's one thing that one reason why I'm so thankful for the reemergence and sort of the explosion of podcasts since then, because the level of dialogue and conversation, it's so much more nuanced, I think, on podcasts than you have on cable news. One, you have a lot more time. But two, because, I mean, sure, there are certain podcasts where you do have people who very much are sort of captive to their audience and pander to the audience. But I find that there are, are more thoughtful conversations on podcasts. But one, so what I noticed was um, that I was a Democratic commentator and I, I still consider, I am a straight shooter. Like I am not someone who, um, who likes to pander, whether I'm in a strategy meeting or on a podcast or on TV, but I found that if whenever I was sort of more honest about maybe the Hillary Hillary Clinton's campaign shortcomings and and flaws, flaws that their campaign would freely admit to now that um, one, the audience didn't want to hear it. Um, the two, the host didn't want to hear it. And three, that like bookers would make would bookers didn't want to hear it bookers want the people who book you on cable news book you not to tell the truth all the time but they book you to tell the audience exactly what they want to hear and what's fascinating to me is that the conversations i would oftentimes have in the makeup room uh, with other guests with other hosts were very different from the conversations we would have on air because they were more willing to say in the makeup room or in the green room what they really felt and what what they thought the honest state of affairs was. But then on air, they would just say things that they knew their audience would applause to um, and would clap, clap along with. And you see that on MSNBC. You certainly see that on Fox News. Both have similar dynamics. Obviously, Fox News is in a whole different other league. But um, and it's really destructive and it's really bad for our politics. And it has really increased polarization because it then means that, one, your viewers are not getting the straight truth. um, And two, that people can just seek out news sources that reinforce their worldview and you know, silo them off more and more and more until they live in these alternate realities where, um, like, it, like if you look at, um, for instance, how MSNBC, and I, this isn't going to be popular with some people, but, you know, I'm, I'm just going to tell the truth. But if you look at how MSNBC covered some of the um, Russiagate stuff in 2017, people like my parents who only watched MSNBC and faithfully watched Maddow every night, were convinced that Donald Trump was going to be charged with treason and march out of the White House in handcuffs. And that's not what happened. But if, like, let's just say the coverage had been a little bit more measured, 
the Mueller investigation led to so many indictments, you know, so many people going to jail. That in itself should have been massive news, but because there was this need to sort of feed this hunger for Donald Trump is a Russian agent, it fed this like um, overheated fake narrative that I think was completely unhelpful to our cause. And we similarly saw that on the right recently with all the Durham stuff that I couldn't even follow because it was like getting so much into crazy territory, but where these, these networks pander so much and cater so much to their audiences that they mislead their audiences to the point I think of, um, you know, doing a disservice to them. And we are now, I fear, seeing some of that dynamic playing out with the search of Mar-a-Lago and, you know, hopefully, hopefully, but I don't think it's going to happen. Hopefully, you know, hopefully that, that doesn't end up being the case. But one last thing I would say is, that's uh, that was one of the problems with 2016 and why people were so shocked when Donald Trump won because it was like on MSNBC and even on CNN it was like you weren't even allowed to acknowledge that that there were some flaws in the Clinton campaign and that Donald Trump did have some of an appeal and it's not necessarily an appeal that worked for people like me um but then when people woke up on the day after the election and saw Donald Trump won, it's like, oh, my God, how the heck did this happen? And part of the reason why they were so surprised is because there was some dereliction of duty in the media in reporting in reporting things out and reporting out the frustrations, I think, that that people did have with some of the establishment in Washington. So. Those are my feelings on cable news and how it does a disservice to people because it has be, does become more of an entertainment industry rather than a straight news industry. All right, let's bookmark that conversation for maybe another one over a beer about advertising-based journalism and entertainment in general, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about what everybody listening, I think, really wants to hear about, which is Mayor Pete. And you basically put him on the map or helped him put himself on the map or however you want to think about it. You were the person behind Mayor Pete. And um, I want to dig into, speaking of media and media strategy, a lot of strategists um, and and pundits have pointed to your communication strategy as one of the reasons uh, Pete did so well in 2020 primary, Um, especially your approach to media availability. And this is one of the best parts of the book. Uh, and I don't want to give anything away. First of all, I'll tell you, um, Pete was my guy. The moment I saw the town hall, the first town hall, I was like, oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm in love. This, <laughs> let's, let's do this. Let's dance. Let's go. Um, uh, like still, still, still not for right now. I know everybody's loves to speculate about it. 20, 2024. I still think it's early and I want to see him in the white house, but, um, but, but I, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, but talk about the communication strategy of, of sort of widely available, uh, candidates and what drove your thinking in that strategy, because it was so heterodoxical, uh, among the old guard political consultants. Right, right. Um, man, that CNN town hall was magical. Oh, I, I still, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Um, uh, so, but to your broader point, 
Pete goes out and announces his exploratory committee January 23rd, 2019. He's got three staffers. It's basically like him, me, Mike Schmuel, who is his campaign manager, and we've got an advanced guy. And then I like to joke, it's like, like the four of us and then like a monkey with a symbol at his at his presidential exploratory um, <laughs> announcement. You know, you compare that it was like done in like a neon lighted conference room in D.C. And you compare that with, you know, some of these other presidential announcements like Kamala Harris had 20,000 people in Oakland. And I was like, oh, my God. God, we are going to get crushed. But one thing we realize is, okay, no money, no staff, no name ID. What do we have at our disposal? One, by then I realized that Pete was just a lights out, amazing communicator. And especially, especially, especially in media interviews. You know, he's, he can't give a speech like Barack Obama, but that guy can navigate a TV interview, print interview, podcast interview, like nobody else. And, you know, he's obviously now become famous for all of his Fox News interviews where he's just like um, earned the moniker of Slayer Pete. But um, so so what I realized was if we could get him out in front of as many people as possible and they could see his unique ability to communicate and how special he was, that that was really our only path to um, success. And there was something about him that really set him apart from the other Democrats, right? This was in the, like in the first couple years of the Trump administration. And everyone thought that the person who would beat Donald Trump was the person that would really take the fight to him by yelling and screaming and being the one to say the loudest that he was a racist, a white supremacist, a misogynist, all of these things, all of these things, which he, you know, objectively is. Um, And Pete, could take the fight to him, but his, the way he talked, um, the way he communicated was so fundamentally different from everyone else. Um, one, he wasn't a yeller screamer Two, his politics were all about the politics of inclusion, the politics of belonging and the politics of not demonizing other people. And he was not, he was someone who went out to independents, to Republicans, to former Trump voters to say, your vote in the last election doesn't define you come over to our side. If, if, if you're so inclined and you're welcome on my team. And that's important in places like Iowa and New Hampshire where Republicans can, you know, caucus, uh, or vote, um, can, you know, switch their registration or whatever it is on the, um, and vote for Democrats caucus for Democrats. But, um, also knew he was just a, a really talented communicator. So while a lot of the other campaigns were sort of going off of this 2004 theory that to be presidential, you should only talk to the New York Times or you should make yourself scarce, only talk to new, meet the press, the super serious traditional outlets um, because you wanted to seem serious or you wanted to avoid gaffes, we went out and really launched what I, you know, not super creatively, just sort of called our go everywhere strategy. Didn't mean we said yes to 
every single outlet. But what we underst- what I understood was that by 2019, the media environment was so fractured. And the way that people got their news was not primarily through MSNBC or CNN or the New York Times or the Associated Press or whatever, that we had to um, meet voters where they are. And that meant sort of building up a strategy where we were, um, yes, hitting the traditional gatekeepers because that's what a lot of the elites read. So doing the Politico, New York Times, all that, the meet the press, the those big outlets, but then hitting every single podcast known to man. Cause you know, oh, I, I don't know about 25% of voters get, um, their news from podcasts, but podcast listeners are freaking die hard, right? They have a relationship with hosts that, um, you don't have with other forms of media. So, and like Pete is just like, I, such a podcast candidate because he speaks in paragraphs and has this lovely deep voice and um, is so relaxing. He's like Mr. Rogers. He's got such a great cadence to the way he delivers answers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. It's yeah, like, it's, it's hypnotic actually. Yeah. yeah. No, I always describe him as like walking Xanax and me as like a walking panic attack um, <laughs> in terms of his speaking style. So, um, but yes, yeah, so, and we hit as many podcasts as, as, as we could early on because we understood that, um, first of all, the audience of podcasts generally tends to be um, more politically engaged, more affluent, um, uh, and you know, really ride or die. So if he, if you hear him on your podcast, you know, you're going to then go look him up, be more likely to donate to him, et cetera, et cetera. But, and at the same time, also hitting all of the local media, all of the local Iowa press, all of the New Hampshire press, because that is where the primary voters are going to be getting their news. It is not going to be from, from national press. And we were doing all of that, saying yes to all of them before all the other candidates were. Then on top of that, we were doing um, non-traditional press, right? We were doing stuff like Barstool Sports. We were doing stuff like TMZ Live because we realized that those outlets have massive, massive, massive massive, massive reach, um, and that they would never seek out, um, political news otherwise, but that we could reach college students in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. when we were on Barstool sports, we could reach a lot of voters. Um, you know, TMZ, uh, live has massive reach on, you know, it's in every media market in the country. TMZ has massive reach online. So we were reaching people who otherwise would never seek out a presidential candidate. And so, um, you know, that was important, but then there was the Fox news element and Pete was one of the first candidates to really commit to going on Fox news. And one of his first big viral moments after the CNN town hall was when he went on and did a Fox town hall in May of 2019. And what was fascinating to me about that and really tells you a lot of lessons about how the media works and why our media strategy worked was not just because Fox has much higher ratings than the other cable news um, channels. I think that town hall got like over a million viewers versus, you know, 300,000 or something for CNN and MSNBC. 
But it was the secondary coverage that really made it worth it because Pete had vi- viral moments there where he took on Tucker Carlson, took on, um, you know, uh, Laura Ingram and had a great answer where he debunked right wing talking points on abortion. And the next day you saw those moments lead every hour of CNN and MSNBC. You saw them um, get picked up by the New York Times, Washington Post. You see them get picked up by entertainment outlets like People Magazine. So it wasn't what happened on Fox didn't just stay there. And it goes to show that if you are willing to go on non-traditional outlets or go on Fox and have a lights out performance, that it can get picked up everywhere. Um, and that if you do have this bold media strategy, it does have a snowball effect. Whereas if you just do the safe traditional stuff, like no one, it, there's nothing provocative about going on the New York times. Like, but I didn't see, you know, a lot of cross coverage from Pete going on MSNBC on other networks, but I did see a lot of cross coverage of and pickup of Pete's TMZ appearances on cable news. So it, it just goes to show that there, if a creative media strategy can really pay off and it really did pay off because it made it so that whether or not you were seeking Pete out, some way or another, you're going to hear or see him and learn about him. And our bet was that if you saw him and heard him, that you would like him. All right. One more. I'm mindful of the time. One more question before we flip over to uh, Politicology Plus. What's your biggest regret of the 2020 cycle? And why is it that the Gay Talk Express never caught on? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, okay, we're going to have to give we're going to have to give everyone some background. Go here. ahead. So, um, okay. So, and thank you. You know what? Ron, thank you because I don't know how I have done so many goddamn interviews about this book. Not one person has brought up the Gay Talk Express. I mean, um, I am all aboard the Gay Talk Express, so <laughs> because to the point of our, our media strategy and our campaign being like the most media accessible, um, we did one of my goals and one of my dreams always in politics, like the holy grail of media strategy to me in American politics was John McCain's Straight Talk Express from the 2000 campaign, where he does this just like freewheeling no holds barred, open press, um, rolling bus tour of New Hampshire, South South Carolina, with all the national press on board. They got a margarita machine, all the boys on the bus. You know, it's sort of mythologized in American politics. And I always wanted to recreate that because that was sort of credited with um, – you know, with how McCain was able to overcome like this massive name ID and money deficit with um, George W. Bush and, um, you know, exceed expectations. And so I wanted to do that with Pete. And of course, it was very different in a 2019. People thought I was insane. I mean, that's sort of a common thread throughout my career as people think I am insane. And maybe I am a little bit insane, but we did need to jolt yeah, you do have to to do this line of work, but we needed to give Pete's campaign a bit of a jolt. This was after the summer of 2019 when his poll numbers had kind of flatlined. So I revisited the idea with Pete 
and the campaign and people said I was crazy because now you're doing it in the age of social media. Like in 2000, when McCain was doing it, like people couldn't tweet everything you did and they would sort of like be like, all right, that little gaffe you made on the bus, like, you know, we can, we can let that one slide. That did not happen in 2019. So we were very conscious of that dynamic, but it was, 2000, McCain's bus was very, very famously called the Straight Talk Express because it you know, went to his brand as a straight talker, as a maverick, whatever. And we died. We poured over so many different names for this bus of ours. And we just couldn't come up with one. So I came up with one, which was a very tongue-in-cheek one, which was on brand for Pete, well, identity-wise, which was... Gay Talk Express. The second I mentioned it to Pete, he rolled his eyes and was like, oh my God, Liz. And, um, you know, it it became an inside joke on the campaign because it was like the dumbest idea ever, but it still cracks me up that that was my contribution (laughs) to the debate. We could never come up with anything because like, how are you going to top Straight Talk Express? No, you're not. You tell me something that would have so instead, we just decided we'll we'll recreate the strategy. And as an inside joke that I shared in my book, I shared my groan-inducing um, idea of, of Gay Talk Express. But um, so yes, that that was a big regret so of good. mine. But it 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 does it does haunt me that we were never able to really <laughs> come up with a an app name. But sometimes you just can't top the original, you know. Oh man, I love yeah, I love that story. Okay, uh, let's um, let's flip over to Politicology Plus really quickly. I want to talk about the realignment of the constituencies in in the uh, um, Republican and Democratic parties. But before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Liz Smith? You can find me on Twitter at at Liz L I S underscore Smith, and on Instagram at at Liz, L-I-S, underscore, underscore, Smith. Um, But I'm most active on Twitter, and you can find some hot, some spicy, and some, (laughs) you know, questionable takes on there. But if you want the real fire, you need to get the book. It's on Amazon and probably a lot of other places where you can buy fiery books. Yes, Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.